Welcome to Five Lives to 50, the sustainability podcast for product managers. This is the third part of a three-part series where we've been diving deeper into how to embed sustainability into each stage gate. In this episode, we are discussing the launch phase, which is the final phase of the six-stage gate process we covered in episode four. I'm Shelley Metcalf, and I'm with my two co-hosts, Jim Bava and Neil D'Souza. And the launch phase is when you are getting ready to take your product to market. Neil, let's start with you. What kinds of things does a product manager need to consider at this phase? I think the first thing to consider is this is this is the combination of all the effort that you put in until now. So imagine you've got a great innovation, whether it's a product or it applies to an entire portfolio. A product could be you, know, you create a new packaging or you create an innovation where the product is more efficient. Or you could look at things that are more across the portfolio. You've invested in green steel or you've switched materials where you move from steel to aluminum or from wasteful plastics to something more sustainable across several products. And I think this is one interesting consideration to make. How do you want to communicate? And there's different ways to do this. But the framing is around what sector you're in, whether you're in the B2B space. So you're talking to your customer as a very technical person. And they use this information to make a decision whether they're going to buy from you, but they're way more educated on this topic than a typical B2C. So when you're looking at a grandma sitting on the couch, if that was your customer, and the way you communicate to them is very different. Not all products are meant for all segments, and therefore the kind of messaging that you deliver based on these products is to be catered to that customer. I think that's, that's I think, the most basic thing one needs to keep in mind. And it's more so for sustainability than not. There's a conversation that we had in the past where should you talk about how environmentally friendly the food is or should you talk about how tasty and how great it looks? And this is what I mean by not everybody wants to know whether it's sustainable or not. And I think these are considerations to make what sells this more sustainable product is the goal. It's not about telling the customer that it is more sustainable. So I think choose the messaging in the right way. And I think there's also a perspective when it comes to different markets geographically are more perceptive to different kinds of messages. In Germany, for example, people are really looking for things that have claims of environmental sustainability, whereas in other regions, this is meant to be assumed. It is not one of the primary buying criteria. That's the general frame. Just because you've created an innovation whose design focus was environmental sustainability doesn't mean you need to talk about it. I think there's another aspect to this, which is there's different drivers for this as well. Some of these are just you have to to make a claim about what is the sustainability value of your product. If you're looking at the different compliance regimes, CBAM was one of the most recent ones that are specifically related to the carbon content products that you import into the European Union. So this is not something that you need to decide how it is to be communicated. You send this information to the government. And the lower the carbon value, the less tax you pay. So there's a consequence of using accurate data. You could use average information and then pay the full price, or you could be careful about how you're calculating these numbers, be as specific as you can. And if there is a saving compared to the benchmark, then you also pay less tax, which is great if you're importing in the hundreds of millions, then that's a pretty significant tax saving. In other regimes, you're looking at safety of of the materials that you've put into your product, whether you're looking at REACH or ROS regulations in Europe, or you're looking at Prop 65 in the United States. These are things that you need to get in order before you go to launch. And it is very specific to the sustainability characteristics of your product. There's another aspect to this, which is voluntary reporting. You want to, and this is what I referred to, you know, talking to your customer. 
there's different regimes of how you do this. You have type one, two, and three environmental claims. So you have labels where you have things like the blue angel here in Germany, but you have similar things all across where you have agencies that say, we'll assess your product and we'll give you a stamp. This is one of those things you can consider. Type two declarations are self-declarations where you can write a great report and you can make a particular claim and you can have it validated by a third party. I think this is one of these important things as well. And then you have uh, type three claims, which are environmental product declarations. So you go to an agency that principally tells you how you should be calculating the environmental performance or the characteristics of your product. You have to write this into a very specific document and you, you share this. Depending on whether you're a B2B or a B2C company, you would choose one of these three regimes for voluntary claims. Type 1 typically is more suited to B2C kind of products, whereas type 3 claims or EPDs are more related to B2B products. And then the type 2, which is a self-declaration, it's kind of neither here or there. You could use it for both. For example, what you see on Microsoft's website, so today you could go to Microsoft and see specific to the laptop that you're buying, what's the environmental characteristics, right? You can configure the CPU and the keyboard and the screen size and so on and so forth. And it'll tell you specifically what the environmental footprint is. And this is a highly successful model that many companies are using to help sell products more. And it's not a label. It's not an environmental label because there's no stamp like an energy star stamp that's a different thing and it's not an epd because it's uh, or an environmental product declaration which is you've specified the rules that you're going to use to make that claim it is important that when you are making a public claim this is verified europe for example launched the anti-greenwashing regulation last year where you can't just make any claim there's actually hefty fines for making claims that potentially are greenwashing so it's very important to keep in mind that you're you're following that guidance information that's provided by the government. And I think the third is confidential disclosures, where you don't really make this public. You sign an NDA with your B2B customer, and then you share information. DSF, for example, does this. They announced last year they created environmental footprints that are specific to the product that you're buying for a large portion of their portfolio. And they only provide this information to their B2B customers, which helps their customers with their own disclosures and make better decisions about how they're designing their products. What is the choice that they make regarding the products that they buy from BSF? And this is huge, right? All of these three things drive decisions at the customer level. It's just which ones you choose for what kind of segment. There are lots of tools that are available to product managers that I just described that allow you to position the product and the value of that you've you've created through the eco-design activities in the previous stage gates in the best possible way. I think it's super important not to forget. In the past, what used to happen is you'd make a, you already have a product and then you try to find a way to say how green it is. This is no longer allowed. There's regulations against this. But if you have created an innovation, it is super important that you leverage this the most. This is not the place where you want to go cheap or you want to take shortcuts. You want to make sure that it is clear and it is a differentiating. It is used as a differentiator to sell more of your product. Because like I said in the beginning, right, the goal is not to talk about great stuff. It is to sell more of this great stuff because that's how we get out of this habit of take, make, and waste. Excellent, Neil. I, I like the the connection back to the, the B2B and B2C and B2G, the government. But when I've been looking at the stage gate process, and I realized that the first couple of stages, you're doing the scoping and the discovery, and then you go to the business plan, and then you go to the data collection and so forth. But launch 
is you've done all the analysis, collected all the data, and you're putting a stake in the ground. This is what we're going to communicate to our specific consumer and why. So right before lunch, you have to make all those decisions. And the, and the point that I really want to emphasize here is that requires, as Neil clearly said, not just wait to the very end, but at the very beginning of the whole scoping and discovery and the business plan stage, you've got a, a first perspective. We sell to a B2B and they are interested, but the consumer who buys from the, the B that we sell to does not seem to be concerned about this. I mean, maybe they're doing power tools or something like that. And they want a, the, the drill that can go faster or run for eight hours kind of thing. But the home box stores that buy from me from a B2B situation, they are very interested. So you have to know that from a specific market standpoint and have that information up front and have all the data collected and have that analyzed. So when you go to launch, you have those messages. You know what those messages are. You've got the data documented. You've got the, the analysis done. If there's a need for some kind of an external review, that's all done. And you can't wait a week or month before launch and then try to do all that. I mean, we've been in the sustainability sort of life cycle business for 30 years. And too many times we get a call, okay, I'm launching this product in a month. Can you give me a LCA to do ABC? And we say, no, it's just not possible. You know, it's just not. Now, maybe some new artificial intelligence that some of our leaders are putting out there might be able to do it. But in my experience base, you can't do that. So it's important right from the beginning of the stage gate process, you say, these are the three or four areas I think we can make a positive sustainability statement and then be able to collect the data. And if you're using an LCA, you have to use follow the ISO 1440 and 44 life cycle standards. And there's FTC in the U in North America. U.S. has environmental requirements. The EU has eco-design unsustainable product requirements coming out. So all these are out there and you need to know related to your sector and your, your market space. So to me, that's the number one thing that you really have to think about. This is the point where you put a stake in the ground and you're going public with your messaging related to why the customer should buy your product. And if there is a sustainability piece to that, then you have to have the data to prove that point. So to me, this is the number one thing you really have to think about beyond all the traditional product management roles that you have in launch. I think there's one more thing to consider, right? In the B2G, what is happening in Europe, I think is going to mm -hmm. proliferate everywhere else as well, in that this choice becomes more and more limited, just like you have in substance compliance, region ROS, where you need mm -hmm. to, where you right. need to, or the CE certification, right? These kind of things where you can't put a product on the market unless you disclose this kind of information. This is becoming more broad. So in the past, it has been around compliance, around it's safety driven, right? Are you going to harm people? I think environmental sustainability, which is not a, it's not directly harming people, it's harming the environment. There's mm -hmm. ESPA, for example, which is no European re regulation, which brings the product passport into, into context. So every product that you have on the market will have a QR code or a reference to an ID where you need to deliver sustainability information or environmental product information. It is something that comes over time, but let's say if you are a $20 billion company, right? We're speaking with one that principally has half a million products. And imagine if you want to, when this regulation comes in, you need to be able to provide, for example, a carbon footprint. You need to provide sourcing information about these kind of products. This is not an option. 
right? It is three to five years where all of these products will be activated and be regulated. But if you've got half a million products, think about it. It's not something that happens in a month, as Jim says. This is something to think about that as you <laughs> continue to build new products, you're embedding this metrics-based system of evaluating what's the environmental consequence of making a product in a particular way, in a particular design, in a particular location, and documenting this and building this inventory of information because this takes a lot of time. And yep. the other aspect of this is a lot of companies have set science-based initiative targets. And in the past, I think in the last two, three years, you've seen this uptick where it went from, I think, a thousand companies five years ago to now 5,000 companies. That's not a small number. 5x in five years. I think the number is more or less around there. I keep myself a little loose on that. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's it's in that order of magnitude. The question is, you reported for the first two years saying, hey, you know, I'm setting my target and I'm going to reduce by a certain amount of impact. I think it's also important to consider that the first years when you set the target is all great. But after year three, people are looking for, are you, how are you doing on these targets? And the thing is that these targets, they're they're harder to meet by just buying carbon credits and stuff like that at the mm -hmm. corporate level, right? Management comes to departments in companies. They'll come to product to say, hey, can we build products or a product portfolio that has lower carbon impact? Or they'll go to procurement and they'll say, can we buy materials that have a lower carbon impact? Either way, this is your job, right? At the end of the day, this is specific to the product that you're making. So I think keeping this in mind that when it comes to launch, more and more it is becoming a kind of norm. It is There's tons of companies that have started preparing for this already five years ago inventorizing all of the activities and what the impacts are on the products. I think you will not be able to put products on the market in, in the next five years. This will start becoming restrictive where you can't put products on the market unless you can make claims about what is the environmental performance. And if you combine this with things like CBAM, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the more coarse you are with this kind of information, the higher the cost is of putting these products on the market. Neil, you brought up a point I've been thinking about a long time, and it, it seems like once you've launched, you know, you say, oh, my job is done. Well, that's not the case. I mean, maybe that been one point, but not anymore. Um, when yeah. you think about the, the funnel that we talked about early on, you've got sort of a, a broad funnel and it narrows it down to the strategic plan or business plan. And then there's a very narrow when you launch. But then mm -hmm. as soon as it's launched, it begins to expand again because you almost Correct. do another discovery, another scoping stage, because now you're looking at market changes like government requirements, customer expectations, improvement and mm -hmm. availability of technologies or data and tools. And so that's from a market standpoint. The second thing that I think really pops into this is, the, as Neil said, the procurement. In your suppliers that you've agreed to, and when you launch the product, they have to be able to deal not only with providing you the parts or the material uh, based on the agreement you have with them, but they also have to make sure that they maintain uh, environmental and social performance requirements that you put into their contract. Mm -hmm. It's important to look at from a sustainability standpoint, as things change, are there requirements that are coming out from customers or governments that impact not only the product, but also your supply chain? The third piece. We haven't really talked about it a lot, but is this whole what happens at the end of life and the battery example, who's going to have responsibility for collecting those batteries to recovering, to reuse, to disassemble all that uh, activity? And what happens is that in the stage gate process at launch, 
We talked about this a number of times as product manager. You have to have who are those stakeholders that you've already committed to have a relationship, a partnership as part of this collaboration of the particular life cycle, not just to launch, but over the the post-launch period. And you need to be able to monitor and work with them to make sure they follow through and do their roles to ensure that the, the product is reused, disassembly, and all the various things that you decided on the, at the end of life. We talked to a product manager, just an example, the other day, and he was telling me when I would sort of describe this process to him, and he said 100%, but when they go to the senior managers right now, the two things that the senior manager really are concerned about, one is this end of life. I mean, they just never have thought about that in, in the degree that we have to today. And so whether it's a battery or a windmill or solar panels or whatever, they still have some responsibility to really understanding and putting the solution together with partners on the consequences of that end of life. So he said that that has raised a lot of senior management's attention that had not been there in the past. And the second thing is that depending on where you go, whether it's a B to C, B to B or B to G kind of a thing, the senior managers are going to be committed to sustainability as a corporation for our overall performance. But then you have to be able to help translate, okay, for my particular customer base or my particular market, the consumer is not very important, but the B2B is or vice versa. So it's a difficult time to begin to sort of translate all that market-specific information, customer-specific information, government requirements on a sector-by-sector basis, you know, brand-by-brand, to the point where that's clearly shown to the senior managers. So he said this whole interaction with senior managers is changing drastically in the last couple of years. And so end of life, and then you got to get that senior manager's commitment and understanding of all the things that Neil has been talking about. I think it's just about more time, right? The launch has been, is a very hectic thing, right? We, we, we make products, but not making physical products at my company. And it's easier to build a product than to, than to take it to the market in terms of the amount of time it takes, right? There's enablement that's required. There's partners that need to be notified. There's a long time that it takes to push the message out through the different channels. This context of what happens to the product after you've sold it. I think it's maybe 10 years old. It's become more popular in the last five years or more mm-hmm. because of the kind of regulations that we're seeing and the kind of visibility that you have for products that are creating harm after the end of life. I think it's just about making sure that you give yourself enough time to prepare for these things. The sooner you start with these kind of preparations, the better. Just to let you know, right, if you wanted to do a comparative study, just say you're making laptops and you want to say my laptop is greener than the competition. You know, you can't just make that claim because there's rules about what you're allowed to do and you need to have a study according to an ISO standard and this needs to then be verified and certified. And uh, a verification can take as long as 12 months, just so you know, right? So very often I've seen product managers that say, hey, you know, we built something amazing. We know it's better than the competition, but we can't claim it because we can't get the verification done in time. So when it comes to sustainability and making claims about the sustainability of your product, you should make sure that you have a good amount of time up in advance to make all of these preparations. I've seen it so many times. Customers have spent three years building a product. 
forgot about the fact that it takes 12 months to get a verification done. <laughs> and then they go live because they don't have any other option. I mean, the product has to go out. Otherwise, you're losing revenue. But they can't make the claim that's going to make all of the difference against competition. And I think this is something to keep in mind. It's not very well known. You only find this out when you're, you have a great plan. Hey, you know, we're going to do marketing. We're going to do a comparison against the customer. And then when you say, hey, you know, can we get this report out? You realize you can't do that. So make sure that you set yourself enough time to be able to do that in advance. The thing that I find most interesting and Neil, and what you just talked about, it's just this nine months, you know, 12 months kind of thing. But we've, we've been approached you know, within a month or two of a product launch. And we just say, we can't do that. And we're approached by the marketing people who want to go public. They've already communicated to senior managers that this is what we're going to do. And the time we've ha I've had the biggest fights, not physical fights, but sort of emotional fights to say, no, you can't do that. We don't have the information to make those claims. And the things that happen at the last month or two is where really the rubber hits the road. But if you did the study up front or earlier on, and you find out a couple of months before launch uh, that you can't make those claims, but the marketing people haven't shared that with senior managers. You can manage that and you go, well, okay, what can we say? Uh, but the problem is sometimes marketing has preempted that with senior managers. They have told, hey, we're going to be able to do this, and they can't. And it becomes yeah. awkward for them and awkward for, for us. So planning ahead, Neil's 100% right. You got to do that up front. And if you do it, then you can have a very solid message, and it may not be as strong as you want, but you can still have a very solid message going to your customers. Well, as we bring this episode close to a close, I'd like to hear from both of you one or two final ideas about how a product manager can be prepared not to miss any of these important steps so they don't find themselves too late in the launch phase to make an environmental claim that they want to, or something else that uh, is important for them to think about in this phase? I think the first, one very obvious thing is, like we described, right, the process of eco design and eco innovation actually starts right up front. Don't slack. <laughs> don't slack on those early stages because that's what's going to help you now. Firstly, because you don't want to be greenwashing, which is a thing of the past where you build a product and then you find out what you want to say about it that could be considered green. I think this is not what we're talking about, but the thesis that you develop early on saying this is going to be more sustainable because make sure you're working on quantifying that as early as possible and keep validating, right? Is it still true? Is it still true? And, and as the stage gets, continue because things will change. You have a design and then something, you know, you have to manufacture it somewhere else or instead of manufacturing, you have to buy it. There are always going to be changes, but make sure you are keeping that consistent model, that digital thread of how this information changes. This is one thing that I could, would recommend any park manager to invest in. Think, think of it in this way, right? We learned this the hard way, and we went from CAD designs to PLM systems. We wanted and PLM systems to the concept of a digital thread. It is for exactly this. You want to document this as early as possible so that you don't have to discover all of this at the end. So I think this is one. I think the second is make sure you know what are the kind of claims, because since you're developing these hypotheses, there are several options that you can talk to, to specialists to say, and sometimes even within your own company, right, to understand what are the kind of claims that you can make, what are the right claims to make. If you're B2B, B2C, like I described earlier on, there's different things that you can do. There are different things that you need to do. Finding this out 
during that hypothesis phase is super important because it'll help you prepare and say, hey, you know, we need to get, for example, a verifier up in advance. We have customers where they've waited eight months. This is one of our customers. They waited eight months to find a verifier that had the time to certify their results. This is crazy, right? In, in, a, in when you're looking at go to market and launch, this is this is an eternity, eight months. But I think this is, this is the second thing that I would say to be prepared for. For me, I think maybe there's one or maybe two. It depends on how you break it out. It's just one. It's just a clear realization that launch is really just the beginning of the product's life cycle, and that means that the company, not just the product manager, but the product manager and his or her extended team has to be able to have their radar out, you know, to make sure they can identify, uh, understand any changes that are happening out there. And if those changes will have an impact on their product, if so, how do they collaborate or not how, but they collaborate with those team members to really deal with it quickly. It's nothing sort of rocket science, but it's just recommitment to really going back and maybe teaming with your trade association folks or your supply chain procurement managers or all those other people that you're part of your extended product management team, but you've got to do it in a way that it's ongoing and you've got a radar and you've got a way to gather that information, been able to understand it and what that information will actually have an impact on your product. And if it does, then you're, you're prepared to make the changes necessary so you can be able to stay competitive in the marketplace. So to me, that's that's the number one thing you really have to do. You really have to make sure there's a radar out there and you've got a way to handle all the insights that you're going to get to make sure it minimizes any negative impact on the product. I think I want to add one thing. I, you just remind me of something. It's a bit of a tangent, but I, I see this a bit as debt. You know, there's debt that you take on in terms of real money. This is conventional. Everybody mm-hmm. knows about this. You take on a debt to invest in a product and you want to see that realization, right? The realization of that investment, the capitalization of that investment. In the engineering world, there is what is called technical debt. These are the kind of shortcuts that you take in order to get the product to market. And I see a third kind, which is evolving now, which is the sustainability debt, right? All of the shortcuts you take in terms of what you need to do to make a product sustainable. Ah, you know, hey, sales are not great. Let's just get a product out. Or, you know, costs of procurement are really high. Let's just try and buy the cheapest material right now. You know, this accumulates. You have to think of it as sustainability debt because people are counting now. We've started this phase, this new era of making sure we're counting this information at a company level. So maybe you'll get away with it this year. You sell a little less of green products, but you'll get more product out. You you get some revenue and you'll accumulate sustainability debt this year. And this comes back to bite you. So I think think of it like you do with technical debt or with commercial debt. Sustainability debt is one of these things that as a company, we're counting and that clock has started. It's 30 years from now until 2050, well, a little less than that now. But your debt is accumulating and you need to figure out how to how to remove parts of this debt. And I think this is, this is something to think about. And as you take a product to market, you know, you, you suck in some air and you say, hey, you know, it's done now. But keep in mind what debt you've taken on when you take that product to market. That's an interesting way to put it and probably will leave a lot of our listeners thinking about that. Thanks, Neil. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode and the three-part series about product sustainability in each stage case. If what you have heard has helped you in your sustainability work, please write to us and let us know. We love hearing from our listeners. 
You can reach us by emailing contact at fivelifes50.com or find us on LinkedIn. See you next time.